Hi, I'm Amada Khan, founder and CEO of Mercury. Welcome to our event. We're talking to Satya and Hunter from Homebrew. Quick introduction on them. Hunter is a part of Homebrew. He previously led consumer product management at YouTube. He joined Google in 2003, so super early. And Satya is also a partner at Homebrew. Uh, he was previously VP of product at Twitter, voting product management and user services teams. Before Twitter, he was a partner at Battery Ventures. Thanks for both of you joining us. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks for having us. First thing, I think it's kind of interesting that both of you have a product background. How do you think that like drives your decision-making when it comes to investment? Well, it's how we met. So it sort of starts there. We overlapped at Google 03 to 07 and, uh, and worked together uh, on the AdSense team. Um, and we'd always wanted to work together again. And so I think um, when we came, uh, I guess, end of 2012 and started Homebrew, um, we felt like uh, because we had had experience inside the org chart, uh, we knew how to be helpful from you know outside the org chart as well um, from an investment perspective. And Sacha, of course, had gone back and forth between venture and product. So I guess he, he practiced, <laughs> practiced that already. Um, so I think when it comes to early stage, what, we're, what we had to guard against when we started was in some ways um, attracting founders who wanted us to be their product VPs. You know, it's like, oh, hey, these are the guys that can teach me how to build a product. It's like, well, we can, you know, make sure, you know, you have access to great product minds. We can tell you some of the things that we did. We can, we have a really good sense of the heartbeat of building, but like the attraction shouldn't be oh, you de-risk your product by getting homebrew. I think you de-risk your product by having, you know, a, a vision of where you're going, you know, a framework of how to get there and then a great, you know, a great cap table, a great team to help you do it. So in some ways, I wanted to guard against, you know, sort of the, the idea that if you didn't have product DNA, you know, we would build your startup for you. The, the thing I'll add is I think it makes us really comfortable with product risk. So, you know, when we were making an investment at the seed stage, we're trying to check the box, so to speak, against the founding team, the market opportunity and the product vision, because we're generally investing pre-product or very early in the product's life. And having come from product backgrounds, I think we have real appreciation for uh, the fact that most products rarely end up where they start. And so, you know, we view making an investment as we've got to get the team absolutely right. Like these are people we want to support not just with capital, but also sweat and reputation. Um, we're generally picking a team that it's, has strong founder market fit. And so the market is really important in terms of timing, in terms of their insights, all those kinds of things. Um, and we want to have an appreciation or early alignment around what they think the product direction is, but we're very comfortable with that changing pretty quickly after we make an investment based on what the team is learning uh, from its uh, target customers. So I think that has really impacted how we invest as well. You said you often invest pre-product. Like, is, so you, are you often pre-seed investors? Uh, like, how do you kind of see yourself and like what stage you operate? Yeah, you know, I think we see, we see ourselves as, you know, seed phase investors, which is essentially, you know, you're somewhere between your first dollar raised and, you know, the last dollar raised that's going to get you to your Series A. Um, and so um, certainly as more and more founders have kind of raised a, a, a pre-seed that's no longer kind of the friends and family few hundred thousand dollars, but, you know, 500,000, 750, you know, I, I hear people even calling up to a million and a half pre-seed these days. Um, you know, we're often discussing with founders at those times, you know, 
we believe that um, we want to enter, you know, as early as possible. And I think what we really look for, I, I think more so than like any specific notion of traction or, you know, uh, 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 you know, performance milestone is have the founders done enough work to convince themselves that this is what they want to spend, you know, hopefully the next decade of their career on, right? So somebody who comes in and says, um, I'm building a marketplace. I've never built a marketplace before, but here's my deck. Um, I haven't done any work other than make the deck and I'm ready to raise a pre-seed, we'd probably wait for the, you know, wait, wait for the quote unquote institutional seed. But if that same person had been like, I went and I, you know, bootstrapped some interesting tests to see if I could generate, you know, supply side demand and, you know, uh, uh, some liquidity in the marketplace. And now I'm ready to start building it out and so on and so forth. I'd be like, okay, let's talk. Um, because, you know, all of a sudden capital then becomes something that's going to help you, you know, advance and take advantage of an insight you have or a hypothesis you're working on um, more so than just capital, you know, being the reason the company exists. As things have kind of changed, uh, you know, you've been doing this since 2013, right? Uh, as things have changed, have you adapted significantly or have you had like a thesis that we're going to operate at this phase and you've kind of continued doing that throughout? Sachi, remember when we were the new kids on the block? Now it's eight years later. We're like, we're old. We're in our third fund and everything. We're old age-wise too, <laughs> not just fund-wise. Yeah. Um, so uh, the thing that's probably changed uh, the most is uh, we've always taken the approach that we want to be the investor of record, so to speak, the accountable party at the seed stage. And so we're leading or co-leading seed rounds for a small number of companies each year so that we can spend the majority of our time working with those companies as opposed to looking for the next investment. Um, and what we need to concentrate, not just our time and energy and commit not just cap uh, sweat and reputation, but we need to concentrate our dollars. And so the biggest change as uh, if staying consistent with that strategy in today's market is that we generally have to write slightly larger checks than when we started homebrew eight years ago. Um, but aside from that, we still think it's true that there are as many places as ever to get capital, but there are still uh, relatively few investors who are willing to be the accountable party and really roll up their sleeves and do the work right alongside the founders at the very earliest stages. Yeah, I think what we, you know, the way that we've always looked at it and we, you know, we started with a focus that wasn't based on lack of capital availability. It was based on the belief that there, you know, in the Venn diagram that the overlapping area of investors who have, you know, sort of the gravitas and capital to, to play a lead role in an early stage financing, who focus exclusively on seed, because we do believe that phase is different than somebody who focuses on seed, A, B, C, you know, like multi-stage is great. We work with them all the time. Um, but I think that there's something special about the seed phase where we believe practicing in it 100% of your time makes a difference. Um, and who is going to keep their partnership small enough so that the, I'd say kind of the needs of the, the, the capital doesn't take on the needs of the investor as opposed to the needs of the entrepreneur, which is to say, we really care about you know, exit value, quality of company building, not velocity of growth for the sake of growth, not disintermediating, you know, the relationship we have with the founder, with a large operations team that, you know, and then we just come in once a quarter to see how things are going. So 
you know, we had a very particular notion of our product being worthwhile for at least a subset of entrepreneurs. And uh, I think as even as they get more and more choices in the marketplace, um, you know, there may be more choices that sit to our right and more choices that sit to our left, but I'm not so sure that there's more choices that look exactly like us. And so it's more just a question, I think, about continuing to make sure that we communicate that relevance uh, uh, and why we believe what we do is important to entrepreneurs and getting their feedback. Um, it's like, you know, they are our customer. So ultimately, you know, we can we can have our product, you know, but they they need our they need to tell us that our product is worthwhile. Um, and so, you know, we don't take we don't take any success or, you know, sort of track record for granted. Um, we kind of continue to look ahead and think, well, you know, what should we do in fund four to make sure that our our product is relevant to the next generation of entrepreneurs. You said you don't want to be the VP of product, but you also said you want to roll up your sleeves to help them. So what are the what are the things that you help them with that you think are like uh, kind of you know formative to the to these companies succeeding? Yeah, so uh, no surprise kind of we we view it as there's three fundamental things that a startup needs to do. It needs to build a product uh, it needs to distribute that product and it needs to build the team that's going to build the product and distribute the product. And so we really try to focus our energies in those three areas, kind of helping to get to product market fit, helping to build the organization. Uh, and that doesn't just mean hiring and recruiting. That means about thinking about culture and values, thinking about compensation, performance management, and putting all of that in place very early on. Um, and then lastly, you know, go to market, everything from pricing, partnerships, marketing, product marketing, um, all those pieces that go into kind of bringing your product and just to market and distributing it. So those are the buckets that uh, we focus our energies on. But part of being uh, the accountable investor early at the early stages is that we're working in service of the founders. And so we don't want to dictate where we can or can't be helpful. We want them to turn to us with the problems that are top of mind for them at any moment in time and ask us for assistance in any of the areas that they're thinking about. And so we often say that there's no job too big or too small. Uh, we wanna be responsive to your needs and take homework from you. And hopefully we can finish that homework before we meet again and take on the next set of homework. But we've got a particular operating model and cadence that allows us to get access to that detailed kind of view into the business, um, which helps us build a really trusted relationship with founders. And uh, we think puts us in a unique place to uh, have an impact and influence the founding team and the companies over the course of time. Yeah, look, here's how I think I, I look at it. Like the, the table stakes are being reactively useful, right? When you get that email, text message, whatever from a founder saying, you know, I need help on XYZ, you know, and you're able to give them you know, relevant, high quality advice, introductions, data, whatever. Um, where we try to get to is being proactively useful, right? That's the seeing around corners. That's the not solving somebody's problem for them, but teaching them how to solve a problem so that they're building the organizational capacity. Um, and it's not just about the company. I think it's about the founders themselves. We, we really want them to be the long-term leaders of their company. So it's sort of partnering with them through that C to A and A to B phase, those first three to five years where we we put in most of our sweat and reputation. So those those founders, whether it's their fifth company or their first company, are emerging from that better qualified than ever, you know, to to lead this company 
to, to its final destination. I think the, the proactive aspect isn't just talent. It's not just about time. It's about two things that, that we really value, context and trust, right? So context is you're not inside the org chart. You're not you know, living with that company day to day. How do you stay close enough to who they are, what they want to be, how they're building to, you know, help them see around corners to, to when somebody asks you a question to not just respond with like a generic blog post URL to, well, here's, you know, do, do things that don't scale. Here you go. You know, good luck. But to actually um, give them advice in the context of who they are. And then the trust, the trust is so important. And I think that starts with, you know, really the first 90 days after we close an investment. Um, you know, do we start living up to the expectations we set, you know, with the founders when we were selling ourselves and telling them all the stuff that we'd be able to do with them or for them, um, just being available and being empathetic and starting to get to know them as people, you know, you, you see one side of a, of a founder during the pitch process. Um, we try to make it as, you know, sort of informal as possible, getting data on each other, but trying to get a sense of what it feels like to work together, not just, hey, you pitch us <laughs> and then we pitch you and then we hope it feels great, you know, after the wire transfer. But that's when you get down to work, you know, the wire transfer clears and all of a sudden, like we've signed up. Um, we're, our do you job have like a, point, just, do you have sorry, a checklist our, of what you try to deliver in the first 90 days? I, I mean, I, you know, we, we start building the cadence of like, okay, we, we do, stand, you know, get the standups on the calendar. Um, if we haven't spent time with the full team, we start introducing ourselves to them so that we can get a sense of, you know, who's there and what's there. The nice thing is like part of our diligence process is, is aimed to hit the ground running, not, not just to sort of diligence a deal. So for example, when a founder is giving us references to talk to, it's not because we think, oh my goodness, they, they gave us three people. Those people are going to like talk about some skeletons of the closets. Like these, these people are handpicked by this you know, founder to be like, here's people who are going to say amazing things about me. But in those conversations, we learn about you know, and ask questions, well, you know, assuming we're fortunate enough to work together, what are some ways we might be able to help this person? Or how can, you know, what are some things you noticed about, you know, where her blind spots are and things like that? So, you know, the work we, you know, it's the work we do actually starts before the investment closes um, uh, in order to make sure that, that right away um, we're helping them, you know, think through, um, okay, what are the next 30, 60, 90 days look like? What are the hypotheses you're testing? What do you know? What do you not know? Um, I think, Sacha, do you want to chime in? I think you're really good at sort of like, what does that kick off in the first 30 days look like? Yeah, I mean, uh, I, uh, Hunter was talking about the first 30 days. I think it starts actually during our diligence process where with only you know the two of us uh, as the partners in the firm, we don't do a formal partner meeting, so to speak, or a formal pitch. We really try to think of each conversation with the founding team as a, a series of conversations that build on each other that help us better understand what the opportunities and challenge uh, challenges are for the business. So that post-investment, uh, we have real clarity around where we should be focused because what we're trying to do post-investment in these weekly or bi-weekly standups is uncover uh, and, and address like what are the key risks in the business? And what are our plans for how to mitigate them so that we have the opportunity to play on, right? Are we putting in place the right people and processes to scale for the long term? Do we know what milestones we need to achieve in order to raise the next round of capital? And so the, the standups or the weekly or biweekly conversations are really tactical, but with those high level questions in mind. And then generally speaking, we're taking a board, a board seat at the seed stage too. And we use the, in the board meeting to take a step back from the day-to-day -to, -day to focus on those larger issues and 
and build a cadence around that. And so those board meetings, which we basically consider working sessions, are equivalent to the working sessions that we have in many ways prior to making the investment where we're doing discovery and, and mutual thinking around important issues that are facing the company, um, which are provide which build upon the trust and context that Hunter referred to that are part of our weekly and biweekly engagement. So uh, it, we really think of it as like a series of uh, trust building, context building, uh, and information gathering that begins with that very first conversation with the founder. Sometimes it just comes down to prioritization, right? Like most people have a list of too many things to do. And very often early on, it's kind of pairing back to really focus on the, like the core, what you need to know now and why, uh, and how are we going to learn that? And what's the simplest, highest quality way to get that information. Um, so, uh, you know, more so than adding things to a founder's list where I find it we're more often than not early in the early days, crossing things off or, you know, giving them advice to cross stuff off. Yeah. We often say, you know, no company dies from a lack of ambition, right? It'll buy dies from a lack of focus. And so part of what we're trying to do is help focus the resources of the company and the attention of the company on the things that matter most by asking those strategic questions that are referred to earlier. It seems like you guys really work for your companies. I find that sometimes uh, you know, entrepreneurs just do these like party rounds where no one has a meaningful kind of stake at seed, but maybe the valuations are higher. Uh, do you find that you're always kind of fighting that mentality? And like, do you think entrepreneurs like should try to find like lead investors that have these meaningful kind of roles and meaningful ownership? I mean, Hunter talked about the fact that we really think about homebrew as a product. Um, and like any good product, like it's not meant for every customer in the marketplace. And so there is probably a little bit of self-selection in who choose to work with us and vice versa. But we do believe that there are certain things that are fundamentally true about building startups and that our model is one that supports the needs of startups in a way that uh, the models, as Hunter said, to the left and right of us don't necessarily do in the same way. Um, yeah, I think it's fine. Like there are certain types of approaches to building a cap table that are just inconsistent with the what, with the work we enjoy doing, right? So if somebody does want a um, you know more passive cap table, um, we're probably not the right investor. And that's fine. I mean, we, we, I just we'll make the best case for why we can be useful. But at the end of the day, you know, founders really deserve investors who are going to, you know, match what they need. And if that's, you know, um, that can be all different types of things. Uh, I would just hate for somebody to not, to, you know, to not choose us for the wrong reasons. Right. Um, but, um, you know, uh, we, we tend to like, for example, we tend to, um, over bias maybe toward mission driven founders over people who are just pure operators, but, um, you know, uh, just love building businesses. Don't really, uh, don't have a personal connection or interest in maybe what they're building. There's plenty of amazing entrepreneurs who are just, you know, sort of focused on the more operating aspects. They, lots of those companies going to be quite successful. We might not be the, you know, the best investor for those. I think if somebody is an excellent operator and solving a problem um, that they care about um, or, you know, have experience or insight in, like then we're, you know, we might be the right fit. So I think there's times that we've actually gone to somebody and said, Hey, you, you, you know, given the seat at the table that we look for, you know, a lead, co-lead in a seed round, like there's some, there's some experiences here that like 
you need on your cap table that we don't have. So maybe, you know, maybe we should think about co-leading and bring in somebody else or, or we'll make some introductions for you, you know, and if there's room for us, great too. I mean, I think at the end of the day, we've taken the attitude that our participation in the ecosystem will hopefully like grow the pie and then we can get our share versus it being like some scarcity game where there's only three entrepreneurs who are going to, you know, create companies of any merit or value. And you're either in those three deals or you're not. And so do whatever you can. It's like, no, we're incredibly competitive and incredibly intense about wanting to, you know, participate in companies that are, you know, successful by all the definitions. Um, but we also care a lot about the people, care a lot about the work we do, and, um, uh, you know, are willing to, you know, are willing to exclude ourselves from opportunities if we don't think we're the right fit. When you say you like companies that are mission-driven, is, is the idea that, hey, this is helping the world in this particular way, or is it kind of just that the entrepreneur is very passionate about their mission? We've usually defaulted to, do they have some story behind the why? You know, why are you doing this? For some, it's, for some, it's vocational. For some, it's academic. For some, it's, you know, uh, generational, demographic, cultural. Um, so we try not to overfit. You know, there's very few areas where we feel like, um, at an industry perspective, you know, we don't want to be involved, right? So for example, so far at least, you know, we've chosen to not do um, gaming, right? Uh, the gaming that depends on, you know, sort of like, you know, one to 5% of your whales, you know, uh, uh, giving you all your money, so on and so forth. We've chosen not to get into vaping, even though I know for people, who, you know, there's a wonderful use for people who are trying to get off nicotine so on and so forth but like that industry as a whole hasn't been exactly where we've settled so outside of those things i i think it's important that a founder believes their company is going to make the world a better place and i believe it's important for them to be deliberate about the values and culture that do that but i also think it's it's i, I don't want to be overly prescriptive about well if you're not curing cancer or, or you're not you know solving hunger um, then you're kidding yourself, right? Because I actually, I experienced that personally. I spent my 12 operating years working on products that were about individual creativity, um, that creativity leading to community and those creators being able to earn money from their creativity. Uh, you know, as you mentioned, most recently running product at YouTube. And I thought all three of those products I worked on definitely made the world a better place. I was proud to help build software that enabled human creativity and economics around that. But you don't think I got, you know, shit for that when people were like, wait, it's dogs on skateboards and user generated content, so on and so forth. Like, how could you say YouTube makes the world a better place? But I believed it um, and I still do. And so for me, it's the, you know, it's the conviction and the articulation um, that matters more so than a particular judgment about, well, you know, these spaces are valid and those aren't. Um, I, I really find it, it distasteful. Um, you know, when, you know, some investor who's sitting on, you know, sitting on top of, of a pile of money, you know, says that there's only so many things that really matter about changing the world. It's, it just might mean it's not the right fit for them. Um, but you know, that's not, that's not a opinion that necessarily holds writ large. Yeah. Just to add to that quickly, I think for, for both of us, it really speaks to, does this founder or founding team have firsthand experience with the pain that they're addressing? that intimacy with the pain and as a result, generally speaking, a unique insight in how to address that pain uh, is indicative of a mission. Uh, so we're not, as Hunter said, we're not talking about a mission in the sense of social good necessarily, but the founders definitely believe that 
what they're tackling is good for the set of customers or the industry that they're going after. And that's what we want to see. There's, there's again, plenty of people who come up with brilliant businesses, uh, you know, where they are the complete outsider um, and uh, just, you know, we're able to come up with a business plan based on their studying of an industry. Um, we, we back those kind of founders on occasion too, but I think we feel like there's the best mutual fit when the founders have experienced the pain firsthand and really have an insight derived from experiencing that pain. Yeah. And there's trade, look, there's trade-offs with that, right? It's easy. Like, I don't want people to sit here and be like, oh, well, there's, you know, they love mission-driven founders and not mercenaries. And like, of course, like that's, you know, that's would be ridiculous to like frame it that way. I think mission-driven founders, ha you know, there's some challenges that come endemic to that. Um, because, you know, because they mix personal and professional, like so much of their identity, what they care about, you know, you, you need to help them, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, prevent burnout and realize that like, you know, the, there's going to be ups and downs, uh, every day with that startup. And that doesn't mean that like, you know, they're an awesome person when it's up or they're a shit person when it's down. Like, um, they also sometimes get frustrated, um, when other people don't see it as quickly as they do, because they've been, you know, they experienced the pain. They've been thinking about it for so long, you know, when all of a sudden they put together a team and they're like, everybody's not as passionate about it as I am, or they don't understand. It's like, well, have you, you know, you, you have 5,000 hours of thinking about this, you know, they have 50, you know, you have to, you have to uh, figure out how to communicate that, you know? So there's definitely things that I think, you know, uh, uh, we help with, you know, uh, it's just, those are the types of problems. I rather solve that problem than sort of the, you know, net present value problem, right. Which is somebody who's just sort of like calculating every morning, whether it's, you know, worth, worth keeping the startup going, or, you know, they should go, you know, back and, 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 you know, return to Facebook, you know, based upon the Facebook stock price. Like that's not very exciting to me. I rather work with people who are like overly committed to their company, stubborn, um, and, you know, see a very particular, uh, vision of the way the world should work that other people don't quite yet agree with. Um, and, uh, you know, and live and die by, you know, live and die by, by that. If someone wanted to get in touch with uh, you guys, is it mostly introductions or do you take like kind of cold contacts as well? Oh, we love cold contacts. Our, our emails are on the website, in fact. Um, we've funded how many, Sacha, would you say? I know at least one, obviously. Uh, no, definitely. I think, uh, I think it's three now. Yeah. So um, I always say a, a good cold email is better than a, is better than a, a, a lukewarm <laughs> intro, right? So the the finding somebody who has our email address but doesn't know you and just getting them to forward an, a message and then i go and be like oh do you know this person they're like not really you know or like not that well i'm like okay i wish they just would have sent me a really good cold email um so you know hunter at homebrew.co Sacha at homebrew.co if you if you don't have a warm intro um the best thing to include is answers to these types of questions we just asked you know like what problem are you solving why does it matter to you and what have you learned or know about that that other people don't um and you know we respond to every cold email at least once is there like a certain size of email that you think works the best any other attributes to the email that are like most likely to work i definitely i mean if i was going to say some of the cold emails air to the long side as opposed to too brief. You know, uh, I, you know, we, you don't need to communicate everything, and I, you also, but at the same time, you also don't need to ask permission to send a deck, right? Like attach the deck, that's fine, or doc send or whatever you want to use. I, you know, people, I, I don't, I don't, I don't have a religion in that whole, you know, tracking versus you know, attach a PDF uh, a debate that flares up on Twitter every once in a while. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's 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 a sales email, right? Like uh, you're just trying to. Uh, uh, 
in, in an honest, authentic way, you know, uh, tell us, you know, uh, why you want to spend some time together. Um, and that's usually sufficient, right? Like, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get back to you. And I think I would recommend show, don't tell. You know, we come from product background. So even if it's, you know, the most bare bones wireframes or, you know, a product walkthrough of some kind, that goes a long way. Yeah, right. So the, I, think that the, I think the most exciting companies for, from an investment perspective feel like companies in motion that these are, you know, these are companies that are going to happen one way or another. And maybe it's a good fit for us to be a part of it. And maybe we can even help impact the curve, but not that this company's only going to exist if homebrew is excited at it or only going to exist, you know, if an investor blesses it. Of course, capital is, you know, you know, coal, coal in the engine for, for a startup, right? So I'm not saying like, oh, this person would figure out how to bootstrap it, you know, regardless of outside investor interest, right? Like bringing on risk capital is part of this. But the difference between like, I'm going to do this if you tell me I should versus this is happening, you know, with without much resources or without, you know, uh, uh, you know, all the benefits of, you know, having raised around yet, you know, here's what I've been able to do, you know, that's, that's very compelling, right? That's, um, that's what gets us on board. I mean, the first one we did off a of cold email, it was, it was two phases, right? The first one, they sort of said, Hey, here's what we're doing. We've got some pilots coming up. And I said, awesome. Let me know how the pilots go. Um, and guess what? They emailed me two months later, uh, as the pilots were midstream and tell me how they're going. And we closed, uh, we co-led the round, brought on the co-lead, closed the round, I think like 90 days later. So, um, definitely, uh, as such, you said, you know, it, it, the more you can show, um, the better. Presumably if there was a strong intro, like someone was like, Hey, I love this team. I just invested in them. You should definitely take a look. That would get, uh, we're talking to one right now that you interest intro introduced us <laughs> yeah. to. So you yes, guys should of invest that company. <laughs> yes, uh, of course. So, you know, in, so, so what are the, what are the qualities of good warm intro? Uh, some personal experience and vouch for the founder, right? Um, some under, you know, some, uh, uh, some explanation, you know, for, um, why you appreciate this person, whether you've been, whether you've invested in them, worked with them, managed them, you know, knew them in college, whatever. Um, and like a little bit of, um, pattern matching over time. Right. So we definitely have people who I think everything they send us is like, the most transformative next stripe, you know? And, uh, and so I think it's important when somebody adds their own context for, you know, why, why this is interesting, you know, what risks they saw, but got comfortable with things like that. Like the more thoughtful, the introduction, like the easier it is for us to, you know, it's like climbing a rock wall. You have, you, those are the crevices where you start to be able to put your, your, your hands and feet and like, you know, get to work. Um, if it's just, this person's awesome, you should talk to them. Like, you know, that's the equivalent of like a sheer wall. Like, you know, we have to sort of plot our, you know, plot our own ascent. Um, and so, um, you know, we're grateful. We're grateful for anything anybody wants to share with us, right? Like that's our lifeblood. We will, you know, there will never be, you know, too many, too many opportunities. Um, but the, you know, the more that a founder can look for a mutual who can speak to some of those things, as opposed to just play the, you know, play the email forward button game. Um, I think the better it is for both sides. I always like it when either the person introducing us or the founder has managed to express through that introduction, why they think we might be a good partner for them as well. Right. We talked at the very beginning of this conversation around us really thinking about mutual fit. And so, as much as we might like a company, we want them to want to work with us and anything that in that initial email that suggests that they've done their homework on us is really powerful. 
One thing that I struggle with nowadays is helping companies think about, you know, where they need to be at when, when they're talking to Series A investors, just because I feel like the old rule books of like what metrics you need maybe don't apply right now. Uh, how are you seeing that shape up? Are you telling companies to go raise Series A's earlier or do you think, you know, there's a certain stage and you should hit that first? Oh my God, we've been trying to slow down Series A's. The be the craziest thing the venture industry has does does is uh, has done is uh, go from you know what used to be considered a cold email is now called preemptive interest right like oh yeah we're, we're thinking about preempting around I, like you know fundraising is wonderful uh, when it works out well and when you get the right partner most importantly I think at the earliest stages um, you know what we try to do is uh, I guess like from seed to A is help a company figure out who they are. Um, because you know, lots of smart teams can will themselves into an up and to the right graph. Uh, but then if you go and you raise money off that and you realize that what got you to that point isn't what you're, you know, isn't what you're going to be, or, you know, now you're trying to fix, you know, change the airplane, I guess, uh, airplane engine in motion as the cliche goes like that, you know, that actually makes the A to B phase, not that hard, not that, not that much fun. So we try to help you figure out who you're going to be and then, you know, what's the right amount of money to raise next and from whom in a perfect world and then help you run a competitive process that gets you you know the people you want at the you know at the best terms uh that make sense for both parties um i think that's like still the you know like you know we we, we see it before we spend our lives doing that and so that's the place you know that we can be most helpful uh, and as such i talked about in the sort of those like quarterly quote unquote um uh, board meetings, what we're we're constantly doing with the founders is tracking against the like where do you want where do you want to be when you go and raise, what does the market want to see? If the market is ready to fund you, does it make sense to do it now or does it make sense to play on, and get rewarded for the progress you make? Each each milestone you hit that you know de-risks the company or increases the you know an, another uh, achievement. You know the the market will respond to that, and so sometimes you know raising successive rounds as quickly as possible actually isn't um, the fastest you know the 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 best path. Um, sometimes you want to be very deliberate and bet on yourself a little bit further. And if you, you know, what is I the, think, yeah, found, sorry, someone, one thing, I think founders who do that though, they have to go back to their, their investors and say like, well, okay, if you're giving me that advice, like, are you going to backstop me? Right? Like, is there more money from you if I need it to get to that next milestone? It's easy to give advice, you know, and then just sort of wait and see what happens. I think it's, it's, it's a, it's a dialogue often between like what makes most sense. Every time a founder and a company raise money, they're taking on more risk, right? They're setting the bar higher, they're reducing their optionality, and the expectations are increasing from the people around the table. And so our view is that the best Series A stories are built off of founders who feel like they've reduced risk in the business so they can balance taking on the risk of more capital, right? Yeah. The best Series A decks are built from the backs of a great business, not from market data around what investors are looking for. Um, and so we really try to focus, as Hunter said, on helping the founders get to the point where they themselves have enough conviction uh, about what they've learned during the seed phase that they're willing to take on the risk of raising a Series A and going through that process. We have never, I don't think in, in our, you know, whatever it is now, you know, three funds, however many companies, we've never been wrong about a Series A. So we, if we and the founders have both agreed on what milestones they need to hit, and they've hit those milestones, 
uh, no company in our portfolio has failed yeah. to raise a Series A. Now, companies have failed to hit those milestones, and some of them have still raised Series A's and some of them haven't. Um, but I think, especially at the Series A, we are never afraid about, you know, what the market says this, or the market says that, or build your story, you know, a year in advance, I'm told I need this, you know, like the easiest way to fail is to, you know, benchmark, you know, four to six quarters out what an investor tells you they they want to see, like, build, you have to build your business and, you know, and then put this, tell the story of that business. I think, you know, by the Series B, you kind of have to start to be understood by the market, you know, in general. But the Series A, like you can still be misunderstood by 95% of Series A venture funds and get a very good round together. Um, and that's part of our goal, right? Our goal is to make sure that um, if you are in an area that is well understood, SaaS, so on and so forth, that, you know, you're checking off the boxes that most SaaS investors are going to want to understand. Um, but if you're in a if you're in a market that's less well understood or a new vertical, um, you know we've we've done a lot in aviation and agriculture and in areas that they don't necessarily have one partner at every fund, you know, specializing. Then it's part of our job to to make that market for you and you know leading into that next fundraise, um, to to bring more people who to the table who have a prepared mind and to start to build that relationship. So, you know, in that case, you know, we're sort of taking the baton and kind of, you know, it's a baton relay, right? Like we are, we're running the the leg ahead of you so that when you reach us, like we can pass off the baton and then you can sprint with it. Is there a particular metric? I know this is always hard. I'll put you on the spot anyway. Is there a particular metric for, I don't know, SaaS business in terms of revenue and growth that they need to hit to get a good Series A? It goes into two, I, so I, for me, it splits very specifically into two categories, right? One is the FOMO categories. Like you are building in an area that people are now convinced are going to have one or more multi-billion dollar winners, right? So um, let's take, you know, over the last year, what does that look like? Well, a lot of the, you know, virtual events, you know, remote collaborations so on and so forth. Uh, maybe the year before that, it was like, you know, sales productivity or something. In those cases, um, the teams that get rewarded, I think, at the Series A aren't necessarily um, the ones with the quote-unquote be best metrics at the moment. It's the ones with the, the package that makes it look like they are likely to be the winner, right? So that can be a combination of metrics, can be team, um, it can be uh, technology slash IP, right? So if you're operating in a category where I'd call it like a FOMO category, um, you know, you 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 go to market when you're ready to say, uh, tell the story of this is why we win this big market that everybody believes is going to is new and is going to be valuable. If you're in a market that's a little more crowded, like let's call it the HRS space, or now like some of the sales automation space, um, like the best thing is to be growing faster than the reference companies before you, right? So it's like, if, you know, Slack grew this fast and we're growing faster than Slack did, you know, in year two or whatever, like that will pop eyes. Um, otherwise you have to at least clear the bar on some of the, you know, the basic metrics that that you know, Series A you know investor who maybe makes two two investments that year is using to screen uh, deals, right? Because your competition in that case isn't literally the software companies that you are selling against in the market. Your competition are the fifteen companies that he or she is going to see on Monday, Tuesday of that week, and the fifteen that they're going to see Thursday, Friday after you. And so, you know, it's funny for one of our companies, we just made this little two by two that was year over year over year growth and ARR and, and gave them color coded red, yellow, green about where we think they need to be at the Series A based upon um, the type of product and industry they're in. Right. And that was like very clarifying for them. Um, so, you know, 
that's the way that we think about it. Um, I, I, you know, there's no one number I'd give you today that says, you know, well, if, so long as you're over a million ARR, you'll get a Series A done. Like, because um, because that you know, as every company gets better and better and better, you know, that number goes up too. All right, we're going to try this. I'm quite skeptical about whether it'll work, but <laughs> you know, let's see. Uh, if anyone does want to uh, ask a question, put your hands up. I will get you on the stage. Uh, don't do any bio or backstory or anything like that. Just like go into the question. Uh, and I think, you know, Hunter or Satcha can say something useful. Uh, but I will kick you off if you do do an annoying backstory. All right. I love off. this. This is great. <laughs> I, need yeah, you in my, of, I need you in my personal life. I'm trying to learn from those NYU girls. All right, <laughs> Natasha, you're first. Hi, no annoying backstory. Thank you for uh, getting me up here. So my question is, do you guys invest in solo founders? And what are your honest thoughts on solo founders? Um, thank you. Yeah, we absolutely invest in solo founders, but we definitely think that uh, being a solo founder is not ideal. Uh, starting a company is damn hard uh, from an emotional standpoint and from a skill standpoint. And uh, we also think it's a, a pretty important signal uh, because of how important selling is as a skill that if you're not able to convince one other person to join you in your cause, like either you're not selling the story appropriately or maybe there's something wrong with the story. So there's a whole bunch of other reasons we can get into where we think like, Co-founding teams uh, have an advantage personally, maybe and may even have an advantage in terms of the potential success or likely success of their businesses. But there are often times where a solo founder, for you know reasons that are unique to them or uh, for reasons unique to that market, have a story that we find particularly compelling, and and we back them as well. But the majority of teams we back are. Uh, teams and not individual founders. Yeah, the two things I'll add to that um, so we can get more people in. One, it doesn't have to be a, a co-founder equal relationship, right? So like, it's not, oh, well, I, you know, where are the 50-50 co-founders who've been working together for seven years and so on and so forth. Like, Sometimes it might be clearly there's a dominant uh, uh, co-founder, but that they've assembled, you know, sort of the beginning of what you'd call the founding team, all of whom feel like owners of that business and not employees, right? So uh, I don't want somebody who, say, who who thinks that they have to find an equal co-founder to get to work, um, you know, to be intimidated by, by that notion. Um, the second uh, thing is, um, I, I'd love for, you know, when we talk to people who are solo founders, you know, sometimes we just ask them about it and it'll be like, you know, is this something you've done deliberately? You know, is it about finding the right person or is this, are you know, are you focused on being, you know, the sole founder for some reason? So it's, it's sort of making it a point of discussion and understanding it more so than it just being a byproduct of, um, you know, the idea that like, well, you know, I, you know, I'm still looking for a, you know, a CTO or something like that. Thank you so much, guys. I appreciate it. Awesome. James, you're next. Hey guys, thank, thanks for doing this. Thanks for having this room. Um, I, I guess it's, it's um, I guess it's a two part question. Um, so, you know, I, I, I do some mentoring with uh, Finder Startups and I've had a couple of founders ask me um, about their thoughts on joining an accelerator, um, kind of like in advance of raising like a, either a bigger, a larger pre-seed or seed round. So I wanted to get your thoughts on, on um, you know, what, what type of, 
what 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 signal or what what type of um, impression does that leave on you when you when it comes to investing if a company has gone through an accelerator? And um, yeah, so we'll we'll just that, that's that's I guess it's not a super two part question. I guess it's just a one part question. So um, that's the question. Thanks. Great. Hey, Saj, I'm gonna let you take that one because I'm curious how that's changed if it's changed at all from when you were you know at the battery days or things like that. Yeah, I think we kind of approach it in the same way that we have talked about approaching some of these other things. It's like when a founding team goes through an accelerator, they're taking on an investor, right? Somebody's going to be on their cap table. So we just ask that people are deliberate around why they decide to go through a particular accelerator. So what we're trying to understand is, all right, well, why did you choose this accelerator? And did you get out of it what you wanted to get out of it? Um, on, on the surface, I don't think there's a particular bias against accelerators, because that would be saying like, well, well we're biased against investors, uh, which we clearly aren't being them ourselves. So uh, I would say that we really try to understand like, why did you choose this particular accelerator? What did you think you were gonna get out of it? And uh, you know, what were the other options that you could have pursued to try to get that same value, um, but, but led you to the decision to go down this path? Yeah, I'll tell you my opinion about accelerators in general is that like, I actually don't, I don't care what they taught you during the accelerator in the sense that I'm a little bit skeptical that, you know, uh, as most are configured, that sort of one to three months of learning are is the difference between success and failure. The two things that I care most about, I'd say, are um, did did they did they do a good job screening? Right. So does um, is there some, you know, sort of uh, uh, filter that they went through in their selection process? Um, that means that the folks that that went through the accelerator, you know, have some set of qualities that are going to make them an interesting conversation for me. And then second is like, do they have a competitive advantage coming out of that accelerator? Uh, you know, the the network that they now have access to, their peers from that group um, selling into that accelerator's base. Um, you know, and that does, it may sound like I'm saying, well, you know, YC and Techstars are the only two you should consider. And that's not true at all, because there's some that are, you know, much smaller and focused vertically, right? So you actually end up with a really, really, what you sacrifice sort of in breadth of um, cohort, you have uh, in terms of tightness of like, you know, a number of companies who are all working in the same space, who you will be referring to those folks, you know, uh, over, you know, the next few years uh, and have a real tight bond with. Um, so, uh, for, for me, it's less about like, was it finishing school and more about, you know, did it do a good job attracting some folks um, that have, you know, sort of high signal and potential for success? And then, you know, does it spit them out in a way that um, gives them, you know, some ongoing advantage um, that uh, can compound over time? Got it. Got it. Thanks. And just really quick, I remember the other question I was going to ask. It's really around equity crowdfunding. Um, what are your thoughts on you know, I know there's been some, some, um, you know, some discussions about like whether or not the valuations make a lot of sense in some of these um, equity crowdfunding campaigns or raises. But what are your thoughts in general? Like, you know, once a company, if if, the, if a company has raised, you know, uh, their their first round of, of, of capital through through um, equity crowdfunding, is that something that that you know is a turnoff for investors? Uh, you know, more than institutional VCs or is it something you take in consideration and you're like, okay, well, this is what they had to do in the beginning. Uh, I'm going to give them a clean slate. I'm going to, you know, run my process and I'm still going to make a determination based on their KPIs, their metrics as to what, as, as to whether or not I'm going to make my investment decision um, from, from there. What are your thoughts there? I don't think we've had such a, we had, 
companies go through equity crowdfunding? I don't think so, but I think the, not because I mean that was still yeah. the early days, right? Like I think it's becoming an increasingly mature and interesting mechanism, especially when people look and say sort of like tap into their community or their customer base or you know, um, you know some sort of connection again that besides the capital that they are you know getting a group involved in the company that is likely to you know sort of play some ongoing role in its success. Uh, if it was just sort of you know trying to scrap together, you know, some dollars, great. There's certainly parts in a company's life where like they just need believers, right? But I don't think, um, uh, you know, I think the ones that we'd look at sort of most appealingly would be as, you know, as part of a as part of a strategy to accomplish something more so than just raise capital. And if, I mean, it's, it's totally appropriate because not everybody has access to the traditional sources of capital for us to see equity crowdfunding as a source of capital. I think the problem would be if the founder has done something that's poisonous to the cap table or to the structure of the company, because that says something about that founder's decision making and whether she or he or, or is going to continue to make you know good or bad decisions about uh, what's fundamentally important. About Although some company. of those, I mean, there's a difference between sort of knowingly and not not knowingly. Like we've had to clean up some cap tables where it's just you know the founders didn't know what they got themselves into, or it was you know sort of desperate times call for desperate measures, and they got taken advantage of. Like every once in a while, we've got to we've got to do that on behalf of the founders, and like that's part of our job too. Makes sense, Alexander, you're up. Hello, hello. Uh, I have uh, two questions. One is. Uh, what is your advice for a startup that uh, <clears throat> have launched uh, the MVP and uh, they they have a, gr a great success, but they are uh, see that they cannot develop the solution because they don't have uh, money enough money. Even they have a lot of uh, potential clients. Uh, and uh, the, another question is, uh, if my confounder is the CTO of the company and uh, he must develop the the project, and uh, he is not doing very good. Uh, what do you think uh, is the best way to I don't know to remove him or what do you think I, I I must do? Thank you. Yeah, uh, I'll start with the second question because I think that's the easier one. Uh, if you've got a co-founder or an early employee who you don't think is performing, the only thing to do is have that conversation directly. Uh, you're too early in the company's life to uh, sacrifice the performance of the company, but you're also you know, partially responsible for uh, the failure of somebody who is part of your company early. I think it's a mistake that a lot of managers, so to speak, make is kind of blaming the person who doesn't perform and has to be fired when there has to be some accountability for the person who did the hiring or addition of that person to the team, because they either, because that person made it through the interview process and you hired him or her. So there must be something about no, what you I, did or didn't sorry. do. Yeah, I'm just saying in general, I'm not saying to your company oh, okay. specifically. Okay. Uh, so uh, that's the first thing I'd say. And then the second thing, like if you've got an MVP and it's successful, but you can't raise money for it, then there's one of two things wrong, I would say. One is your definition of success may be incorrect because the market doesn't agree with you. Or two, you're not telling the story in a compelling enough way to create your you know, 
one or two true believers. Because again, at the earliest stages, what you're really trying to do, because you don't have enough evidence, is to convince somebody to join you in the journey and to see the world that the way that you see it. And uh, there's probably something wrong with the story if there, there is a successful MVP, MVP with real traction. All right, we have five more minutes, so let's try to get through a couple more questions. This is actually kind of fun. Let's try to stick to one part of questions rather than two parts. Uh, all right, Babak, you're next. Thanks, Imad. Satya, Hunter, great to meet you guys. Um, my question is only one part. It's about hardware startups. So we run an augmented reality device company, um, and I wanted to get your thoughts on how you guys think hardware startups should approach fundraising uh, as different than software. Uh, we don't do a ton of hardware investing. We, we tend to do hardware investing where there's a real software IP and generally a uh, ongoing recurring revenue stream of some kind. Um, but when we have done hardware investing, it's been, they, we've been very clear, like we need to know what milestones are important uh, and what risk reduction you can accomplish with the amount of capital you're thinking about raising. And sometimes uh, it's not very much capital to, that can allow you to prove something out. In other cases, like we're investors in a supersonic plane company called Boom. Like the, even the first set of milestones were really, really expensive. Um, but there was, a, you know, there was a story to be told around why that was the case, what needed to be proved and how much capital it would take. And by reducing those risks, kind of how much value would accrue uh, you know, before having to raise capital again. So I think you really got to balance the amount of capital that you need with the milestones that can be achieved. Um, and then you've got to find the investors who are willing to go on that journey with you. So the worst thing you could do is not be aligned with your early investors with a hardware startup, I think, because that's when you find yourself short of cash and with no backstop from the people who are already around the table. Uh while I bring someone up, what got you over the line with Boom? That seems like a particularly hard hardware startup to fund. Uh, we had known Blake for a while, the founder there. We had, he told a really compelling story around why now was the time to reimagine uh, air travel at supersonic speeds. And he was also able to attract some early talent that was indicative of the fact that even though he didn't come from the aircraft industry, that he would be able to uh, bring in the type of people who would work with him uh, to really tackle the early risks in the business in order to then have some proof points to go raise the, the next amount of capital. I don't think we've ever felt like uh, the future capital was a slam dunk, but we felt uh, a lot of comfort around can Blake say what he's do what he says he's going to do with this amount of capital and then we can you know hopefully convince the rest of the market that it's worth you know betting on the next phase and taking that risk yeah makes sense it was a great investment Phil you're the last question awesome thanks Imad I have a quick question about um, what do you guys think about investing in startups locally in the U.S. versus companies abroad um, given the given the current situation with COVID, uh, do you guys have like a personal preference, or does it not matter to you guys at all? Only Miami and Austin. 
I'm joking. I'm joking. Oh, the gods. Okay. Um, we to be funny, we've actually um, we've extended our geographic range as we believe we've been able to extend the confidence we have that we will be able to support entrepreneurs the way we want to support entrepreneurs. So in our first fund, we didn't just basically New York and Bay Area um, because we didn't want to overextend ourselves as we were sort of getting our sea legs. Now, fast forward to fund three, Canada, you know, basically anywhere Canada, anywhere US will invest. Um, and we've started to do in our sweet spot areas, which is really sort of FinTech, financial services, horizontal vertical SaaS, started to go outside of US. So I think what we really look for is an area we know uh, and or um, if it's a local regulatory environment or other type of uh, situation where some uh, local expertise would be great on the cap table as well, being able to make sure that we, we have that. Um, but the story has been as much about sort of, you know, our own ability to execute as, you know, any, uh, any um, point of view on, you know, where, where great companies are going to be built. I think great companies are being built everywhere. And we've always been comfortable investing without having met founders in person. We've been doing that from the very first fund. And so COVID didn't change anything from our perspective when it came to that. I think Phil is maybe speaking a little bit to your US company, US Delaware Corp. you're targeting US customers, but you know now with COVID, maybe you've moved to Portugal or to Bali or something like that. Does that affect your decision just because the founders live somewhere else? Yeah, it hasn't to date. All right. Thanks for providing more context, Imad. And uh, thank you. Thank you. Okay. Awesome. Great questions. Wow, that actually worked out. Uh, All right. Of... This is going to be this is going to be an awesome weekly show. Thanks for uh, doing yeah. it every every Monday at two. <laughs> We're not doing this every Monday at two because <laughs> that would be way too distracting for Mercury. But we will be doing this every few weeks, uh, and we're actually recording this as well, and we release it as, on our podcast. Uh, Sacha and Hunter, thanks for being here. You guys were both awesome, uh, extremely insightful. Uh, and yeah, I think if I was raising a seed round, I'd be lucky to have you both. Thank you. Next time. So <laughs> yeah, make it happen. <laughs> All right. All Bye, right. Everyone. Thanks, everybody. Yeah. Bye.